Hello and welcome to the Wicked Ones podcast. This is Jen. And this is Tara. And how are you doing this fantastic evening? Yeah, you know, living the dream still. <laughs> Groundhog's Day every day, yes. all day. Living the pandemic dream. Yes. Um, yes, and I've just been dealing with, I'm sure you can hear it in my voice a little bit. Um, I've been dealing with sinuses again, you know. You're my sinus soul sister twin (laughs) so you know know, how it goes I know all too well it's that time of year where they just flare up and then it's Mm -hmm. an ongoing concoction of tea and tea and now I I took did I tell you it was like I think it was like expired by a year my airborne and I was like eh Still took it anyway. I'm like, hopefully it's fine. It's a manufacturer (laughs) trick. I'm sure it's still. As Billy always says, it's just a spice. It's just a spice. So I was like, ah, it's kind of like a spice. It's like vitamin C. Sure. We'll call it a spice. (laughs) That works. That works. It'll be like my uh today when I give my story, I'll be like Phoebe with with her sexy voice for singing sticky (laughs) shoes. (laughs) Hopefully. Hopefully it comes across that way. Oh, I'm sure Um, you will find you all sound great. I always do. So what else is going on with you? Uh, we're having uh, the great Thanksgiving debate in our house. Yes, us too. It's, uh, you know, our numbers keep going up and the uh, large gatherings or medium gatherings or gatherings in general are definitely frowned upon and uh, we're just, we're not hosting this year, which we usually do and I know that's sad for the kids and I feel bad for my grandma because she's home by herself and I know it's just such a sad situation we'll be okay but Mm -hmm. I I mean that's like the highlight of our year well one of them was when my brother comes in and yeah he's here for the weekend and it's mass chaos and there's dance parties at the yeah. end of the night. Oh, we, I mean, we just, absolutely. the kids pass out everywhere. I mean, we just have so much fun when he's yeah. in town. So, I mean, we're so. kind of the same. I mean, we really enjoy our family gatherings, and we look forward to just football and food and um, games later on at night. We just sit around and play games, and it's so much fun. And I don't know, I'm getting, I'm getting it from every angle. My brother's texting. My mom's kind of giving me the, you know, I don't know. I don't know what to do. I just, I worry like you. I worry about my grandparents and I feel like things here have been getting so much worse and I don't exactly know how it is there in Indiana where they're at, but I don't want to be the one responsible for getting anybody sick. So I also don't want to get sick. Yeah, I don't want to get sick either. My family is on board with not getting together, but I've had family members who've had COVID. Mm -hmm. So... They don't want to get anyone sick or, you know, they don't want to get sick again or they kind of have already gone through or mm-hmm. are currently in yeah. that situation. So I think they're just scared. So luckily I'm not getting pressure. I'm getting, I'm, but I still, I'm still getting the sad feelings from everybody. Everyone's very disappointed. Yeah, I know. I just think as far as my family back there, they haven't experienced, they don't really know anybody who has it yet. They still don't. And so... To them, it's not real. It doesn't become real, I don't think, until you really know somebody that's struggling through it or going through it. Or even like what you said, even if you're okay and you're not super sick, the time you have to take off from work, the time the kids are home from school, just all of that. The The inconvenience of it all is... That's the, that's that's definitely something I don't think a lot of people even consider. Yeah. I mean, it's not just the being sick. It's mm-hmm. 
going through all of it and getting the rest of your family sick because yeah. it's pretty much impossible to stay in the same house and not everybody get it. Mm-hmm. And There's you have just... to quarantine from the last person's last day of symptoms in your home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so if you're in getting it in tandem. So if you have it on day 10, but you're, you know, if your daughter gets it on day 10, you start you over. Start you're over starting on 14. Uh, and yeah. Yeah. that just sucks. It does suck. So we should talk about food instead. Yeah, so we'll still, we'll still make lots of Thanksgiving food, like I told the kids. Lots of, well, just feast and... Cooking all the favorites. What do you guys, what, do your, what is your family, like, what's your go-to oh, that the kids and that you guys love? Um, well, Stella loves pumpkin pie. That's her favorite. Um, Julia loves all, like, you know, the snacky appetizers. Mm-hmm. All that kind of stuff. Girl after my heart. And yes, all the snacks. She loves all the <laughs> snacks. And she likes mashed potatoes, mm-hmm. which it took her a long time to like them. And then once she discovered them, because the texture was weird for her, yeah. she's like obsessed. Maybe she can talk to Chase because he still won't try mashed potatoes. And he used to love them. That was his yeah, thing that I would get thing. for him on his birthday when he well, was little. We used to get it from like Kentucky Fried yeah, Chicken or Kentucky something Fried all the time. Chicken. That yeah. was his favorite. He loved yeah. their mashed potatoes that. and gravy. And now he's like, ew, that's gross. <laughs> She loves that. So but we do all the things, right? The green bean casserole and oh, the hash brown yeah. casserole. Hash brown casserole, the turkey, the gotta have the cranberry sauce that's like super good for you. <laughs> right out of the right out of the can. I was gonna it's say like... the, the one that's out of the can. Because <laughs> yeah. I made homemade cranberry sauce and my family actually booed me. Oh <laughs> yeah, no, I would boo you too. I'd be like, Where's the eighty nine cent ocean yes! spray? <laughs> my family was like, Why did you do this? You uh-huh. should where's the can? And I so... canned stuff is so good. I used to eat like an entire can by myself. Isn't I was like, funny? please give me more. Yes, it's amazing. And I only have it on Thanksgiving. Oh. I never think to buy it any other time. It's like all of a sudden, like you just can't yeah, have that. No, <laughs> I don't, don't know buy why. it any other time either. Mm-hmm. Oh, but it, yeah, it makes me sad. And then all the leftovers that we all, mm-hmm. all eat for days and make it into any yeah. sort of. Well, if we end up if we end up staying and cooking, and you guys end up staying and cooking, we might just have to, you know. Get a whole. We'll, we'll have to swap who's cooking what and share the feast. And, yeah, that'll make it yeah. easier and more. Or if fun. we're all good to go and we know we're, you know, we're good, maybe we could get together and actually Quarant- do some of those fun things. Quarantine, Quarantine together. Quarantine like we did for Halloween. Yeah. We avoided all gatherings. Oh, we did. We did a good job. We had a great quarantine Halloween. We did. It was mm-hmm. very low key, and but we still had a lot of. Well, it was low. It was. <laughs> There was a lot of action. We did a lot of things. We had pinatas and scavenger hunts and games. And it was amazing. Pumpkin carving. I mean, we did all the, the things. The haunted houses. The Oreo haunted houses. The Oreo did haunted houses. Did you mention houses. that already? No. Oh, my God. We so did the Oreo, and the little mummies. Even the guys did it. We had a blast. But it was just not typical and obviously a lot less people because it was just yeah. us. Golf cart rides. Golf cart rides. So many snacks. We did like appetizers yeah. and then we ordered we, Do you realize food? though that we totally set the bar high and now the oh kids gosh. are going to expect this every <laughs> Halloween? Only if there's a pandemic, children. Only right. if there's a pandemic. Otherwise, it's just trick or treat for you. Yes. <laughs> and then go hide in the back room and eat your candy like mm-hmm. you usually do. And they swap. They, that's what they missed. Ava said she missed that the most was the trading of candy. She's yeah. like, because they, you know, they get it and then they figure out who's Remember, got what. And... I have five Butterfingers and ten I will swap yours. Can I have your big Snicker bar for my seven, you know, whatchamacallits? Do they even make those anymore? I don't know. I liked them when they did, though. Yeah. Not that I need any more candy. Oh, no. 
for some reason I've been thinking that I can eat candy now because it's in the house. So I have been eating candy that I never, I never eat candy. You know me, I'm not really like, I'll do chocolate once in a while, but I'm not really a candy person. And I have eaten my weight in, uh, what is that stuff called? Mm, what are they called? All of a sudden I can't think. Sour Patch Kids. Oh. <laughs> oh yeah. It's like my new favorite thing now. I have to stop. I have to throw it away. It's bad. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm not really, I'm a chocolate person, but I'm not really like a candy person. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, I was eating them until I was like sweating. I was like sweating. <laughs> this is way too much sugar. You have sour. no like taste buds left on your, your tongue because the, the oh. sour is huh. eating them all off. And then I didn't eat dinner because I was, like, full from Sour Patch Kids. And I was like, I'm really setting a bad example. <laughs> <laughs> kids are like, my gosh, Mom, where are all my Sour Patch Kids? I'm like, I don't know. Oh, my gosh, that's crazy. They must have fallen yeah. out of the bag. It's know, amazing what this quarantine will do to you. I know. You pick up all kinds mm -hmm. of hobbies, Sour Patch Kid eating. <laughs> <laughs> but um, today you are telling us our... Yes. The final... November. And this was hard. Didn't you think November was hard? November was really hard. November serial killer birthdays because they're all very well known. Mm -hmm. And I like to tell my stories less known. That I mean, was the we biggest try. struggle. We really try to, to find something that's not quite as sensationalized. But I did get excited about my story and uh, I'm excited to tell you why, but you, you have to wait till the very end of my story to find out what got me interested in it in the first place. And it was like this crazy fact that I had not seen, and I think it's been out there, but um, I've listened to other podcasts on this story before, and I've read articles and articles and articles, and I never saw a mention of this. So I'm, I'm hoping I'm going to get you today. You're pulling a gen. Mm -hmm. Like, why yeah. do you think I chose this case? Why do you think that this interested me? So today I am going to tell you the story of the lipstick killer. And you know, have you heard this one? Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm sure that you have. So, and I have. Two. I almost chose this one. Did you? Mm -hmm. Oh, did you research it? Well, I looked. I've read about it before, so mm -hmm. I looked into it a little bit. Yeah. So before, when I was looking into it, I only read like the they skimmed through the top, you know. And I think I, I just looked at like the what it was, what happened, who did it, and then that was it. And then now that I've read a little bit more, I'm like, ooh. There's some meat and potatoes to it. There is. So let's get let's get going. All right. So uh, the lipstick killer, William George Hirons. Hirons was born in 1928 in Evanston, Indiana, but he grew up in Lincolnwood, which is a suburb of Chicago, for those of you that don't live here, uh, during the Great Depression. His parents were immigrants from Luxembourg. Uh, his family was uh, in the floral business, but it went under when, uh, I mean, obviously it's a Great Depression, so the economy wasn't doing so great, and they lost their, their flower shop. But his father, George, was a laborer, and he took odd jobs, but um, it was said that he spent most of his meager earnings on socializing with friends. And it, I thought that was interesting because everything that I read said socializing with friends. And I was like, huh, drinking, gambling, maybe other things among that. Like, it yeah, didn't really I say. actually like that term. Yeah, it's I was like, of... you know, all right. Um, so his mom, Margaret, worked at a bakery, uh, and he was often left with his younger brother uh, with babysitters. So his family life really wasn't as terrible as you might expect from so many of the early life stories that we hear of serial killers. Um, but it was just, there was a lot of turmoil in the home. His parents argued a lot and it led to him leaving the house just to get away from it all, right? He couldn't stand being at home. And he was said to be a loner who enjoyed technical things. So he liked chemistry, toy airplanes, drawing. Um, I read that he was really good with like anything that he drew with his hands. 
um, anything artsy. Like he was just very meticulous when it came to his hobbies and he was just kind of good at, good at doing these things. So he would draw and repair old clocks. That was just kind of some of the hobbies that he, that he did. I mean, they didn't have technology back in the day, so the kids weren't on iPods and iPads back then. It was, no. just, it was interesting. They were, but they were taking things apart and they, putting them back together because that's were. what you did. And that, that's Because you're curious cool. how things work. Yeah, yeah, and they, I just... Sometimes it went back together, sometimes <laughs> it didn't. Sometimes not so much. But yeah, you know, it just it kind of reminded me of a simpler time when kids had to figure out what they really were good at, what they were mm-hmm. interested in, and what they wanted to spend their time doing. I feel like, I feel like you know, we need to have another... Um, what do you call it? like no no tech week again to kind of have cause the kids just they start doing things that you never would think they would do they just oh, yeah. get they so creative all the time yeah I love it it's just a great idea but anyway uh, so he decided that um, apparently this wasn't enough for him and he needed more of a thrill again maybe he should have had the iPad I don't know <laughs> so um, but so he to release tension he started burglarizing because you know that's what you do when you How want to really touch him so at this point he is oh gosh i want to say he was like 13 yeah. um maybe even younger maybe even younger than that i don't know that i wrote down the very first the first age that he was when he was burglarizing but i'll come to you when he was uh, first caught so but he claimed that he mostly stole for fun he never really sold anything that he had stolen but he had like a shed nearby that he would store all of his loot his I called it his loot locker <laughs> in my head. I'm like, yeah. oh, it's a loot locker. His treasure. Yeah, yeah, his treasures. So um, he was bored. So he was just bored. And this was just a way for him to probably do something thrilling and mm-hmm. get away with it. Mm-hmm. So it was the thrill of it, really. So yes, and then at 13 years of age, he was arrested for carrying a loaded gun that he had stolen. Never a good idea. And after searching his home and interrogating him, police discovered the unused storage shed on the roof nearby with all the stolen goods. So he was then, at this point, sent to the Gibalt School for Wayward Boys. Hopefully I'm saying that correctly. But after only a few months there, once again, he was released and he was arrested for burglary again. And then, at this point, he was sent to St. Bede Academy. So it's either St. Bede or Bede Academy. It was a school led by Benedictine monks, which you would think that that would be just awful, right? But he thrived there. He did really well, and he ended up um, being accepted into the University of Chicago's special learning program early. So he skipped his senior year, and he started there at the age of 16, which is not something that you hear very often. His parents were, unfortunately, unable to afford the tuition and board, so he worked several evenings a week part-time, and he started burglarizing again as a way to help pay for his tuition and board. So he's like, I don't know. So then he started selling stuff. Um, So I read that he still kind of kept everything locked up that he stole mostly, but he started stealing war bonds um, and he started, you know, he started doing more things for the cash because he he actually needed it for something this time. So, um, and also I thought this was interesting. One University of Chicago graduate, Riva Berkowitz, said that Hirons was very popular, especially in the ballroom dancing class they had together. Took ballroom dancing. And she said, and I quote, I remember the most popular boy in my class who was handsome, smart, and a good dancer. We all wanted to dance with him. The foxtrot, tango, or a waltz. It didn't really matter. So I thought that was interesting that he doesn't sound like your average. At this point, even in the story, I'm thinking, oh, this guy doesn't sound like all the other stories that you normally hear out there, right? I'm thinking, well, this kid actually had something going for him. Mm -hmm. So during his second year there, his grades started slipping a little bit. 
This is when he started dating more and spent uh, a lot less time on his homework, which we see all the time. He had a series of romantic flings. Apparently, apparently he got over the fact. I thought this was interesting. He he once kissed his girlfriend and vomited right after because when he was 11, he caught a couple having sex. And when he brought it out to his mom, she told him that sex was dirty and led to diseases. I mean, that, you know, mm-hmm. that was it. He was 11. So he apparently got over that because he started dating a lot and he had um, a series of romantic flings and, uh, you know, and I'm sure those burglaries probably took a lot of time to plan as well. So his, uh, his grades weren't doing as well as they once were. But it was at this time, too, in 1945, when Hirons was 17, that the lipstick murders, as they are known, began. So let's dive into the three murders that would become infamously linked together and known as the lipstick murders. The first one was a 43-year-old woman named Josephine Ross. On June 5th, 1945, Josephine was found dead in her apartment on North Kenmore Avenue in Chicago that she shared with her two daughters. Josephine had been stabbed multiple times, her body had been washed, and the wounds duct taped, and her head was wrapped up in one of her skirts. It was thought that this was a crime of opportunity. Basically, she surprised she surprised the intruder, who then decided to kill her. So it was, you know, thought, the police had thought that someone broke in to burglarize, but, oh, surprise, she's there. This happened. But uh, no valuables were missing from the apartment. But they Duct tape, but they washed her body. No, that's not a crime of opportunity. Right. This exactly. It seemed. But didn't they try to downplay this to keep so from panic spreading? If I remember correctly, this wasn't even. You're right. This wasn't even in the papers. It didn't even make the papers. And the whole, like, political. Yes. Well, this is right after the war. So a huge political. Yeah, you're going to get into all that, I'm sure. No, 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 go ahead and talk about it. No, well, I mean, like, that was, I remember, just remember, like, the chief of police and a mm-hmm. bunch of people getting involved, and they just... Oh, yeah, yeah, the commissioner himself was involved. Everybody in, wanted in to, like, solve on. it, and they were on top of it, and oh, they didn't yeah. want to cause alarm. They had everything under control because they wanted to be the best because yeah. they wanted to keep power over the city. I mean, I just remember reading a bunch of oh, yeah. different... It's crazy, this. and I don't go into all of that as much, so I'm kind of glad that you brought it up. No, I mean, I thought it was crazy that this murder in itself was so weird that duct taped wounds and all of this and that doesn't make the paper no they wanted to downplay it yeah well of course they did they wanted chicago to thrive well they didn't want anyone to feel unsafe no and they were worried too didn't they play it off i don't mean to interrupt you no no no, keep keep these soldiers that were coming home who were like they didn't have a lot of money and they didn't know how to function in society so Mm -hmm. they were saying that the increase in crime was yeah. due to these soldiers post-war, uh-huh. not knowing how to function in society. And actually, that's not something that I read in any of the articles. Really? No. Uh-huh. No. Yeah, I know, but that's really interesting. That's what they tried to play it off as. It's one of the things So I they were read. worried that this was going to come out and this is going to look very negative. Mm-hmm. Oh, on the city. Gotcha. So yeah, they yeah. were really just trying to... Mm-hmm. No, that's a good take. I mean, I really, I talk a lot about the media later because you know how we feel about the media. But... Yeah, and then several dark hairs were found clutched in her hand. So that was really the only other evidence. So yeah, so I thought that was crazy, right? That it, it wasn't it wasn't something that was talked about. It wasn't in the paper. And you're right, that could be why they downplayed it. That's really interesting. I like that theory. Did they say that in something that you read? That that's exactly what their thinking was? Uh, I mean, 
That was one. Yes, that was one of them. Yeah, one of the theories. They wanted. They wanted to make sure that people. They wanted people to think that they were safe and secure, and that well, and the city's the law city enforcement had, under, had control. under control. Mm-hmm. They didn't want anyone to feel threatened because, and I think it gets worse, obviously, as the murders. Oh, it does it go gets on. Murders, yeah. They definitely tried There's to. There's definitely, yeah. And then they can't ignore it any longer. Correct. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, here we go. Um, so Josephine's fiancé had an alibi, as did her former boyfriends and ex-husbands. Sounds like there were a lot of them. And although they didn't have any suspects at the time, there were accounts of a dark-complected man who was reported loitering at the apartment and running from the scene. But no one was able to identify or locate him. Uh, Josephine was known as Josie to close friends and family. I couldn't find much else on her except that she was recently made a widow the previous year. Her husband, Herbert, had passed away, and she had hopes of possibly starting a restaurant with the insurance money from his death, but that it hadn't yet been received. So I thought that was interesting. She had some plans. Fast forward to winter, and on December 11th, 1945, 33-year-old Frances Brown's naked, bloodstained body was found in her North Pine Grove Grove Avenue apartment in Chicago, which was not far from the Ross residence. I definitely wanted to note that. Martha Ingalls, a housemaid that came to clean, discovered her body when she noticed loud music playing from the radio and the door ajar. So it sounds to me like she might have been coming to clean another apartment. I couldn't really get that verified. In some places, they said it was her cleaning lady. Not that it matters, but I just wanted to... I always try to get all the details right. It said that she... uh, The door was ajar. So maybe... I think maybe she did come to clean the apartment, but her bedroom door was ajar, and the radio was really loud. So she she pushed the door open and peeked inside, and she saw um, Brown's blood-spattered bed and a trail of blood leading to the bathroom where she found her in the bathtub, like, sprawled out across the bathtub, actually. She had been shot in the head and brutally stabbed. And this is this part's really bad. But there was still a butcher knife that was, like, lodged in her neck. It had gone, like, completely through her neck to the other side. That's severely brutal, and there's a lot of rage there. There's a lot of rage in this. No, and yeah. it didn't... It, from the articles that I read, too, it just said, and her body was treated very similarly to Josephine's but there's differences right there's stabbing over here well there was no gun there was no gun and it's I'd be curious to know if the stabbing was post-mortem or after the gunshot Mm -hmm. it said stabbing was post uh post-mortem okay yes that's serious rage yeah uh, hopefully they're not playing this one down as a burglary as well well, again, it seemed to police that she had interrupted a break-in and was a victim of circumstance. Lies. You guessed it. Lies, lies. So nothing, but nothing had appeared to have been stolen. So in both cases, it's a burglary gone wrong and nothing is taken. I mean, if he's going to kill them, and if he can't, we might as well do what he came for. And No, if you're burglarizing something, you don't hang around and stab the person and put them in the bathtub. No, you don't do all of those things. But what I'm saying too is if you were there to burglarize in the first place, you're going to take something before you go. But Mm -hmm. why wouldn't you? Absolutely. You know? And if you kill the person, you're probably going to take even more. Yeah. Because now you have time to like loot the whole place. Do whatever you need to do. Yeah. So it doesn't make sense to me either. Thank you. Nothing appeared to have been stolen, but someone had scrawled an eerily written message in lipstick on the wall of her apartment. And this is where I want to show you the note, okay? So, you guys are going to hear some rustling of paper. <laughs> Here you go. 
Okay, so here's the note. And as you can see, it says, for heaven's sake, catch me before I kill more. I cannot control myself. But look at how it's written. That's interesting, right? Have you ever like just sat and really looked at that? Like those C's look like E's. There's like a weird backwards T. Um, well, and it's also a combination of cursive and right? capital letters and lowercase mm-hmm. letters. So if you saw this, what would you think? I feel like it's a setup. I yeah. Don't know. yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Like a like someone tried really hard to make it look this way. Mm-hmm. You don't you think you would have to? You would have to take your time to make those letters be that I would. I mean, I would have to take my time to really think about, okay, this is gonna be a cursive letter, now this one's gonna be backwards, now this mm-hmm. one's gonna look mm-hmm. like this. It just doesn't seem like somebody just scrawled it on the on the wall. Right? No, I agree. And how could you even begin to match that up with somebody's handwriting? I don't care how I write. If I have lipstick and I'm writing on a wall, do you think you're going to be able to match that up to my handwriting? No, not at all. I will say, though, I'm impressed that the letters match. Mm-hmm. So every time there's an F, yes. it's a capital F. Uh-huh. Every time. I mean, like, every letter matches. Right. So it's not like it's a capital F and a lowercase letter. Right. Like there's there was definitely some thought cons- put there's into consistency, that. yeah. Because if you were just randomly scrawling something and wanted it to look crazy on the wall, I don't think that you would take the time to match the letters like that. Mm-hmm. Cool. I'm glad we talked about it. That's I just I really I wanted to get your your take on that too. Okay, so police did note a bloody fingerprint smudge on the door jam was found at the entrance door, and there was a possible eyewitness to the killer's escape. George Weinberg heard gunshots at 4 a.m. And John Derrick, the night clerk stationed in the lobby, gave a statement that he saw a nervous-looking man of 35 to 40 years old, about 140 pounds, leaving the elevator, fumbling his way out of the door onto the street, and then he left. So, I mean, there's eyewitnesses all the time in just about every the case, every case that I read. You know, there's always something, somebody saw something, and sometimes it's multiple things. Whether it matches up or not, it's just interesting that they saw, this is what they saw, and this was noted. So just kind of keep that in mind, too. Uh, Francis was described, I always like to try to get a little info on the victims, but Francis was described as a homespun girl from Richmond, Indiana. She went to business school, was a hard worker, and had a great job with A.B. Dick Company. During the war, she enlisted in the Navy, and she used her office skills to work as a telegrapher. She spent three years in the service, and then she returned to her job um, after the war in August of 1945. So, I mean, she had just gotten back and she hasn't been home long. No, she hadn't been, she hadn't been home long at all. Suspects in her death were few, but the lipstick note, as you might guess, the media fire was lit, right? Like, the media was all over this. That's exciting. You know that everybody's going to be trying to get the scoop, right? Especially back then. Who could scoop who? Who could have mm-hmm. the first? Who was first to the headlines? This was a very big deal in, in the papers. Like, and everybody read. It almost felt like back then, if you read it in the papers, it must be true. I think there was a pride in being accurate in your mm-hmm. reporting, opposed to how many clicks or sales you can get. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I agree. Like you, you wanted to be first, but you wanted to be right. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we already talked about this, but I had mentioned in my notes that Josephine's murder didn't even make the paper, but now that they had the lipstick killer on their hands, the Brown murder was all that anyone could talk about. Four days after the murder, the Chicago police announced they had reason to believe the killer was a woman. And this was mainly because, for heaven's sake, was a term thought to be more feminine. What do you think about that? 
Wow, if you guys hear that, the wind is getting after yeah, it. There's a major storm going on out there. Storm going on. For once, it's not my children. <laughs> um, well, they they don't mention the lipstick in that. Mm-mm. They just don't. They just say that for heaven's sake is more of a like female term. I thought that was interesting. Something to think about, you know, why you why you listen. Um, okay, and then a local butcher, George Caraboni, actually confessed to the crime. But when his story changed several times, the police couldn't take him seriously, even though he was under investigation for 13 other murders in Ohio in which women had been beheaded and dismembered. The police ended up having to let him go. And it was probably more because, you know, hey, we don't want to have to deal with them here in Chicago anyway. You take them, Ohio. Yeah, you know? yeah. Like, we're... Well, they, they probably, the MLs probably didn't match. And... Mm-hmm. Well, it didn't really. I mean, he didn't, he didn't behead anyone, but he almost did. I don't know. I don't know how the, I, I don't know. But yeah, you're right. The MOs are a little bit different. But still, the fact that he confessed, but he didn't really know the details, you know. Who knows why people confess, but they do it all the time, right? Sometimes I feel like they want more credit. It's so weird. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I already have 13. Might as well confess to a few more. Mm-hmm. So the headlines start to fade. The police had no other leads. And as I mentioned, the war had just ended and Americans were really eager to celebrate their first peacetime Christmas in five years. I get it. They don't, nobody wants to think about this right now. They just want to, they just want to move on, right? It's mm-hmm. been a while. They, they don't have any leads. But then, January 6, 1946, would pretty much bring the city of Chicago to its knees with the news that sweet, innocent, six-year-old Suzanne Dagnan in the Edgewater District had been kidnapped from her home and brutally murdered. January 6th was the end of the holiday vacation for the students at Sacred Heart Academy, and the next day, the Dangnan girls would be returning to school. Mrs. Dangnan recalls waking up that night, hearing the barking of dogs nearby, which wasn't uncommon, and she thought she heard some men talking on the street. So she woke her husband up. Then she thought she heard Suzanne crying, but, you know, they waited a few moments. They didn't hear anything, and so they just went back to sleep. Which, like, I cringe. It just makes me so sad that she didn't just... Something, you know, something in her made her wake her husband up. She should have gotten up and walked in to check on the kids. You know, I think about that. And I always think about that, too. Like, when you, what Remember you said. Remember what I said? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You every, said, no matter what, when you wake up, Every single matter. time I wake up, I do a bad check. That's amazing. And I Because something say, had to wake me up. I don't know why. So I have yeah. to do a bad check every time. I think that's, that's a good Could you imagine if there was a camera at night? I'd probably do 15 bad checks. Oh, my God. It's a mobile all the time. <laughs> There she is again. But I, I've got, I think about that and it makes me feel bad. I got like my fan running and I got, you know what I mean? And, and I think well, whatever yeah. wakes me oh, up, yeah. I should get my ass out of bed and check on the kids. I'll be like, all right, what would Jen do? She'd get up and she'd go. <laughs> she's she'd obsessive go compulsive. That's okay. It's not a bad thing to be obsessive compulsive. I just think that as a mom, I would just never be able to forgive myself for not going and checking. Yeah. You know, but it's, Absolutely. I mean, I'm not saying it's her fault. I'm just saying I would just. That was that would be something I would never be able to get over. The next day, Suzanne wasn't in her bed. Her bedroom window was open, and she was nowhere to be found. A seven-foot ladder stolen from a nearby nursery was outside her window, and on the floor of the bedroom, they found a note, um, and it read, Get 20000 ready and wait for word. Do not notify FBI or police. Bills in fives and tens. On the back, it said, Burn this for her safety. And this is the note. So they didn't burn it? They did not burn it, no. So, and it looked like, it almost looked like it was written on like a really long piece of paper, or maybe that's just how it photographed, 
but I had to kind of blow it up for you. But as you can see, it's written kind of... With a know, lot of misspellings? A lot of misspellings. Like it was maybe written by someone who wasn't as intelligent or trying to appear like they weren't as intelligent. I don't, I don't know, but... Um, it's twenty thousand dollars in fives and tens. Mm. What kind of bag are you carrying around? <laughs> I don't know, right? Yeah, twenty I mean, twenty thousand in fives and tens. Yeah, it would be. That's a big bag. Yeah. yeah, it is. You think of some of these things that I'm just like, why wow, I did not <laughs> think about that. But now I'm thinking about this, and I'm wondering how big of a bag you would need. But now yeah. I might need to know. Well, <laughs> I mean, it just. We're talking gym bags. We're talking like what? Are we, what are we talking about? We're talking here? big bands. <laughs> So, um, so at this point, everyone's on high alert due to the nature of the crime. Even the police commissioner was personally involved in this one. As you mentioned, it was very political. They wanted everybody to know that this cannot happen. They were, they had it under control. Mm -hmm. Especially because, whew, here goes, this is, it's just, it's just, it's always hard to talk about. Uh, but acting on an anonymous tip, police discover what appear to be what appeared to be the head of a golden-haired doll. Sadly, they always say it's never a mannequin, and in this case, unfortunately, it wasn't a doll either. Suzanne's head was found in a sewer a block from the Dagnan residence, her right leg in a catch basin, her torso in another storm drain, and her left leg in yet another drain. Her parts were so scattered about that her arms weren't found until another month later in another sewer so they were just spread out all over the place but good god right this six-year-old girl was just stolen from her bedroom and dismembered i can't even imagine how people would i mean even as desensitized as as we are today with everything happening all the time something like this happening no that's can you imagine this no. back then i'm sure everyone was even now it makes me sick to my stomach to think about it Absolutely, but I'm just saying something like this, if it were to happen today, would still be probably this sensationalized oh, and huge, huge oh, and international, and we would all be just, you know what I'm saying? That's basically what I'm trying to say. Is it would have the same effect today. It would have it the same effect today. I really think it would. It was just awful. Um, blood was found in the drains of laundry tubs in the basement laundry room of a nearby apartment building where it was believed that the killer took her body and dismembered her. So it was thought that she was taken from her bedroom window and strangled, you know, killed, subdued somewhere between her apartment and then this laundry room. And this is, this is actually a picture of the laundry room area. And if you want to flip it over... It's a picture of where they found, where they found the first body part in the storm or in the sewer right there. So as you can well imagine, most, uh, uh, one of the most intense manhunts ever, ever conducted in the entire nation was set into motion. Police questioned hundreds of people, gave polygraph examinations to approximately 170, it said, and several times they claimed to have captured the killer, though everybody was eventually released. And I'll talk more about a few of them later. But I do think it's important to note this. A man called the Degnan uh, residence several times demanding ransom, but hung up before, you know, any real conversation could take place. So they never really got to talk to this guy, but it, it, they called several times. And a Chicago mayor, um, I mean, and Chicago mayor Edward Kelly at the time, 
also received a note and it said, this is to tell you how sorry I am not to get old Dagnan instead of his girl. Roosevelt and the OPA made their own laws. Why shouldn't I? And a lot more. So this is... At the time, there was a nationwide meatpackers strike and the, the Office of the Price Administration, the OPA, was talking about extending uh, rationing to dairy products. Um, Dangnan was a senior OPA executive recently transferred to Chicago, and at this time, another executive of the OPA had uh, recently assigned armed guards after receiving threats against his children. And in Chicago, not too far away, a man involved with black market meat had recently been murdered by decapitation. So this is like another big political thing going on at the mm -hmm. time. So police considered the possibility that the Dangnan kidnapper was a meatpacker. And also the other reason that they considered it too is because of She's cut her off. body. Yes, yeah. because of her dismemberment and the fact that um, they said that the cuts were, they weren't, they were made by somebody that was skilled in cutting. Precise. Very precise. So like a surgeon or someone who's used to cutting meat that could have, could have been either or. So Summer eventually arrives in Chicago, and the hunt for the killer hadn't slowed down. You can imagine the fire under everyone's ass to catch this monster. Like, it was just, I'm sure that they were feeling the heat every mm -hmm. single day. And this is where we left off on William Hirons and how he fits into the case. On June 26, 1946, 17-year-old Hirons was caught burglarizing an apartment, which just so happened to be near the Dagnan's residence. He made his way to a nearby building, but someone saw him and called the police. He tried to escape down a stairway, but officers Tiffin Constant and William Owens boxed him in. So I'm imagining him, like, in the middle of the stairway, one officer down at the bottom, the other one at the top. He's trapped. He has nowhere to go, right? So it was then, well, I didn't really put this part in because I didn't think it was that that important, but it said that he, he drew a gun on him, and there was just so much conflicting there was so much conflicting, like, hearsay on this part. So he said he he didn't, he held the gun up and, because he, he was felt trapped, he didn't know what to do, but the officer said that he actually fired twice and it misfired. He said that he, he tried, he basically tried to kill the officer. He said he never, he never did that. So I kind of initially left that out of there. But it was an off-duty officer that saw what was happening and he rushed to help. He wasn't armed, but he managed to grab three clay flower pots nearby and drop them from above onto his head, knocking him out. And I just... I'm That's kind of, of like out of a cartoon. Right? Doesn't like it Bugs sound... Bugs Bunny? <laughs> what is something. it? Roadrunner? What, you remember the... The cat with the coyote. coyote yeah, yeah, yeah. It does. It sounds like I don't know. Or Tom and Jerry, you know, day. where they're like shooting each other, but yes. everyone's still alive. Yeah, no, it it sounds exactly like that, and I I thought the same thing. I just started laughing. I'm like, oh my god, what? He got him with a flower pot? <laughs> okay, and I think I read in one other account that this off-duty officer was wearing swim trunks. I swear, I did, but I. Did. <laughs> couldn't find it again so I didn't put it in there but I'm gonna say it and I just it just makes the story even better off-duty officer in to the rescue yeah yeah totally I mean you could you can just picture it so after he was knocked unconscious he was then transferred to Bridewell Hospital which is the closest one to the Cook County Jail Hirons later said that he was interrogated around the clock for six consecutive days by being uh, by being beaten by the police and not allowed to eat or drink or speak to a lawyer. He was not allowed to see his parents for four of the six days. He said he was strapped to a bed and given injections of sodium pentothal, which um, 
without anyone's consent, obviously, and without a warrant. And this is a drug that was known at the time as truth serum because it weakens the functions of the brain. But today we know it doesn't really work that way. It's more commonly used as a short-term anesthetic or like a lethal injection drug, I guess. They use it for that too. But he, this is awful. He said he was given, also given a spinal tap without any anesthetic. Can you imagine? I remember doing that with anesthetic and I thought I was going to, it was awful. Why are they giving him a spinal tap? <sighs> and I don't know if they did a spinal tap with the sodium pen, pentothal drug. Mm -hmm. I don't, it didn't say what they gave him, like what it was for or with, right? Why would you do that? Do you know? No, that's why I'm asking. You can't, like, why do they normally do spinal taps other than when you're going to have a baby and they give you an epidural? Well, I mean, it's usually for pain. Mm-hmm. Well, apparently they were doing it to inflict pain. It doesn't say exactly what they were doing with that. Yeah, that's yeah. interesting. It is interesting. I'll have to look that up. Yeah, well, now you, all these things that we say we're going to look up and tell you later, aren't you glad that we actually do? <laughs> well, sometimes at 2 a.m. I do, but I never share it later, after the bed checks. <laughs> <laughs> I look everything up and I'm like, I gotta remember to tell everybody. Exactly. Found out this answer. And then I'm like, nah, I totally forgot. I feel satisfied. Yeah, you can look it up. You have Google. We have Google. You have Google. Google. Okay. So under the influence of the drugs, he was interrogated for three hours. And afterwards, it was said that um, Hirons talked about an alternate personality named George Merman. He said George might have committed the murders. And again, with the press... George is Heron's middle name, and the media thought Merman sounded a lot like Murder Man. So the printing presses went wild, accusing him of the guilt with, right? Maybe he was a merman, like a mermaid. Maybe he was. Maybe he was so fucked up on drugs, he didn't know what he was saying. Yeah. How about that? Yeah, let's just... Uh, yeah. <sighs> it just kills me. I don't know. So... Obviously, Hirons claims he has no memory in the interrogation, and no one can look back at the record. Because he was roofied. I know. <laughs> Come on, guy. Like, no, I have, he wakes up, and he's like, I don't know what just happened. He probably doesn't I remember. I thought this was a dream. Yes. Anything from that whole time. I don't know. Just no one should be treated like this. I, I can't believe it was even, like, legal to do. It wasn't legal, but I can't believe they got away with it. I don't know. Okay, I'll just keep going. They wanted to pin it on somebody. <sighs> they had to have their guy. Mm -hmm. They had to catch somebody. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So he obviously claims he has no memory of this interrogation and no one can look back at the records to find out what exactly was said because the original transcript, 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 <laughs> the transcript skipped out. Yeah, the transcript <laughs> skipped out. Exactly. It disappeared. So in 1952, Dr. Grinker, a psychologist who had taken part in the interrogation, actually came forward and said that Hirons uh, never actually implicated himself in any of the killings. And I wonder if that was the first time that he said something. I don't know. Just that's what I wrote down in my reading. And I'm wondering if, you know, really that was the first time that they, they tried to look back into this. I don't know. Could be. Wasn't really that long after. Um, but anyway, on July 12th, 1946, uh, William Hirons was charged with assault with intent to kill. So that was the pulling the gun on the officer. Uh, robbery, 23 counts of burglary, and three counts of murder. And I talk a lot about the media, but I think it's really important to remember that newspapers had so much influence. When they ran with the murder, the murder man story, making Hirons out to be a modern day, basically Jekyll and Hyde, the public ate it up, right? They're thinking, oh, this guy's crazy. Of course he did it, right? So what do we have in the way of evidence and what are the thoughts here both ways? 
Let's go over it. Number one, even though the handwriting experts could not link Hiren's handwriting to the lipstick message, the police claimed that his fingerprints matched the bloody smudge print that I mentioned was found on the door jam of Brown's apartment. Okay, but later we find out that this supposed fingerprint they found appeared to have been rolled on the door jam as if it was possibly planted there from like an evidence card. You know, when you when you go mm-hmm. to fingerprint people and you take their yeah, thumb and then you it. roll it, that's what it was. Mm-hmm. So that's fishy and suspicious in itself. Two, a print that was uh, left, the, uh, the little finger... Nope, I'm reading that wrong. A print of the left little finger, okay? Also allegedly connecting Hiren to the ransom note, even though it only had... And there was there was some discrepancy in the things that I read, but I'm going to go with nine points of comparison. Some things that I read had less, but I, you know what? We're going to go with this one <laughs> just because... I, do you find that all the time, right? There's, all the time. All the times there's discrepancies it's in, in age or mm-hmm. whatever. I don't think it's really that important to be completely accurate on this. Just know that uh, the FBI standard is 12 points. And because even if it was only nine points of comparison where they were they were comparing the loops, the print could possibly match up to like a further 65% of the population. So you can't consider that a match. Mm-mm. But they did. Um, and also, so the third point, of course, the story of George Merman, which we talked about, the alter ego could have done all these awful things, um, as we know, um, could have also been due to the severity of drugs. And we, we kind of really talked about that, but I still want to know what happened to the, tra- the script. What did we say about that? The transcript. <laughs> the transcript. The transcript that skipped out. And then among, uh, num- the fourth thing, among- well, how can they even use that if they don't have it? Hmm. I don't know. So they talk about it, and then it disappears, but they can still use it. So shady. Well, and I mean, they probably put the people on the stand that were there, and they testified to, oh, yeah, yeah, he said all those things, mm-hmm. you know, but it's gone. Or they had it, but who, who even knows? It could have been doctored. I mean, even if they had the transcript. Yeah. Who, who wrote the transcript, you know? Um, okay, and then number four, among Hiren's loot locker, <laughs> the loot locker, uh, I don't know what to call it, but that sounds good. The police found a Nazi scrapbook and a copy of a book titled Psychopathia Sexualis, which, honestly, that doesn't look good at all. Can't I don't have a lot to say about this one. Okay, I can't really back him out of this one, but it's basically, because it's basically a historical book depicting dark fetishes and sexual oddities, and it included stories of famous dismemberments and other sadomasochists, like sadomasochistic crimes. Um, but... Even though it's not cool to have those things, somebody with the academic background that he had, the fact that he was actually studying German in college as well, I don't know, I could see these books might be appealing to a boy his age to steal just to look at because he's mm-hmm. curious because it's curiosity. different. I mean, it's it's just way different than any other thing that you normally find. And technically, we talk about murder every week, and if somebody looked at my browser history, I might be in trouble. I'm totally going to jail. Yeah, nobody should look at our... Well, how do us. they know it's the same person that did all three of these? So that's exactly what I thought when I was reading through these. It didn't seem like they even linked up, right? My thought when I read it, just even to this point in the case, I thought, okay, they needed somebody to go down for all three of these. So you're going down for this case. You might as well confess to yeah, these so two other cases. I'm going to just wrap this up in a neat little bow and call it a day. And that's exactly what it looked like to me, too. I don't know how you go from, from those women to... Cutting up a child. Absolutely. And the, and it's just, it was different too. They found a ladder outside her 
there's a ladder found outside her, her window. That wasn't ever in any of the other mm-hmm. MOs. I mean, it looked like they just basically went for whatever door was open, mm-hmm. you know? Maybe and followed them mm-hmm. and stopped them. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yep. Keep keep your thoughts coming, John. Keep them coming. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Um... So, okay, so then also among Hiram's stolen goods, they found a small surgical kit. I know, again, eh, another point against you, buddy. I'm sorry. He claimed, though, that he would use it to remove the serial numbers from the war bonds that he started stealing. So, and I have to say on this point, the lab tests do show that none of the instruments were used on a human being. But this didn't matter to the press. Once word got out, they had another field day. Like, can you read the headlines? Oh, yeah. Splashed across the front page, dissecting kit found immediately became the headline and then i'd click on it oh yeah totally click <laughs> obviously on they're not clicking on it not <laughs> then but you didn't have clickbait back now. then but they knew exactly how to do it they yeah. knew what they were doing so it said that he was actually in his cell in jail he hadn't confessed to anything at this point and he heard the story going out over the radio telling the public all the dirty details of how he william george hirons had murdered all three of the victims he was shocked he was upset And he yelled, I didn't confess to anybody. Honestly, my God, what are they going to pin on me next? So that's what he said from his cell. He's hearing this over the radio. That's so scary. That is scary. That's that's movie worthy. Yeah. And you're just like in there and you're, you probably feel like you're in the twilight zone. I have no idea. That would just be awful. And then also I want to note too, in his confession, he stated that he disposed of, because obviously we're getting to the point where he confesses, right? We all know that he confesses. Well, if you didn't know, spoiler alert, in like the next couple of <laughs> paragraphs, he's going to confess. So in his confession, he stated that he disposed of the hunting knife, which he used on Suzanne, in the elevated subway tracks near uh, the scene of the murder. Okay. The police never did search the L tracks, however. So learning of this, reporters inquired with the track crew if they had found a knife. They had found one on the tracks, and they kept it in the Granville Station storage room. So the reporters basically went, go back, they get the knife, and they determine that this knife belonged to a guy, Roderick, same person who had his Colt twenty two cal- uh, caliber gun stolen that was also found among um, his, you know, in his loot locker. So on July 31st, Guy Roderick positively identifies the knife as, yes, that's mine. And Hirons acknowledged that he threw the knife in there um, from the L train, claiming that he didn't want, he just didn't want his mom to see it. And for this one, I really have nothing. It doesn't look good either, that he, like, knew of this knife and this knife was there. But it was a hunting knife. But he's, he, for one. told them about the knife? He told them about the knife. I never read this part before. Yeah, so this is the part that kind of threw me off a little bit. But they did test the knife, and scientifically couldn't match it to being involved in any type of murder. There was no, there was no proof that it was but used. But he said, I did it, and the knife I used is over here, and yeah. it was there. And it was there. But it doesn't seem like it was the knife that was used in the murder. Well, it was a hunting knife. Wouldn't that have a serrated edge? Wouldn't that leave, wouldn't that not have a clean, am I wrong on that? I don't hunt, I don't so hunt I'm not really sure. But I feel like the it would just not be the same as like a surgical instrument, right? So they said a surgical instrument did the stabbing. I don't know. I don't know what kind of knife they did didn't the stabbing. Say, they just said, well, not the stabbings. They didn't. They or are they didn't. talking about the dismemberment? What yeah, we, the what dismemberment. We, okay. Yeah. So his lawyers 
although it is believed that they had good intentions, worked with the state's attorney's office and, and they pushed for Hirons to take a plea deal that would allow for um, basically just one sentence if you pled guilty to all three murders. So they're like, okay, we'll make this deal with you. You wrap this up neatly. You confess. You're, you're in for like one count, right? But when it, when it came time to confess publicly, Hirons went back to his original story, that he was innocent and he had nothing to do with any of the murders he was being charged for. So they, they're getting upset with that this is taking longer. It's not all neatly, you know, stowed away like they thought. So his plea deal was then changed to three consecutive sentences instead of one, and his lawyers still leaned on him heavily to take the deal because they were afraid of the death penalty, honestly. They just, they wanted to keep him out of the chair, so they thought this was the, the better, the better, better deal. The deals. I mean, it really stinks, like, look, thinking about it and looking back, that he didn't have a defense team that was looking at all of these things going, there's no way, there's no way we have to fight for this kid. Mm -hmm. I know what he did. They were so worried that he was going to get, you know, the death penalty. And, yeah. Ultimately, as I mentioned, Hirons would take the deal. He gives a confession on August 7th, 1946, and he was given the three life terms. Uh, Hirons ended up being a model prisoner. He helped several of his fellow inmates get their GEDs, and he was the first Illinois inmate to receive a college degree while in prison. Oh, that was interesting, and I'm not surprised. He just seemed like that. He seemed like he was going in that kind of direction, you know, with his with his academics. Um, many researchers, journalists, and lawyers have provided evidence of doubt in Hiram's case to date. Many believe that he would never ever have been convicted today. With of course not. I mean, no. we see the people they get off that shouldn't get off today. Yeah, no, I mean, they no just way. get off and they write books about how they did it, and then they're, you know. But you can't do anything about yeah, it then? Yeah, do no, about it. it's... I don't know, just, uh... So, I mentioned a few of the pieces of evidence used against him, but recently I read that 29 inconsistencies have been found between his confession and the known facts of the crime. It has since become the understanding that the nature of the inconsistencies is a clear indicator of false confessions. And there was a name for this. I want to say it was called the Reed Technique. And I know I'm probably saying that wrong because I couldn't find it. I remember it was one of those things I told you I was trying to find. But it was like a technique used in interrogations at this time period that was basically, this is how they treated people when they thought you were guilty. They just beat the shit out of you and shot you up with truth serum and just... To, I mean, you didn't have any rights, and they. But this was common. I mean, so this was like right around the time that that was used as an interrogation method. So, mm -hmm. um, and yes, they said that a study had been done that, of course, to no nobody's surprise that it elicited a lot of these false confessions because people couldn't take it anymore. They didn't. They would confess to anything. Yeah. Well, they weren't in their right mind or body. Mm -mm. No. So it was at this point in my research that I crossed my fingers and I looked up John Douglas because I thought I remembered that he gave his professional opinion on this case. I was very excited to find out that I was right and I wanted to share with you his thoughts. Um, for those of you who don't know who John Douglas is, he's a retired special agent with the FBI and one of the first criminal profile profilers. He's written several books on criminal psychology that definitely don't disappoint and I highly recommend all of them. But let's go over his thoughts quickly because I was happy to see that he had the same issues as I did with the notes and you too. And when we were going through here, he thought a lot of the same things that we were questioning about the murders themselves. And I didn't even, honestly, I didn't even think they were connected when I was reading them. And that's, again, what you had said, like, are these even, are these even connected? People. I mean, I doubt it. 
So John mentioned that Hirons is one of the serial offenders that he and his partner interviewed back in the 70s. Um, he mentioned that there was nothing arrogant or sinister about his presence. He wasn't intimidating. He was very polite during the interview and maintained his innocence, which obviously we know doesn't really mean anything, but I think that just stood out to him because most of the people that they did interview, these serial killers, were not this way. They didn't act like this at all. They were very ego egocentric and... Well, and a lot of them yeah. want credit once they're convicted. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A lot of them do. And he mentioned um, after the interview that it just bothered him that, you know maybe this guy was telling the truth and he was innocent and he was, you know, was, wasn't rightfully imprisoned. And he said that he was affected by it so much that he gathered the files and he set to work right after this, looking at the case. And as he did, he said the evidence was incriminating. The fact that he had a background that was very much like repeat, you know, predators, that was a check mark against him, obviously. A risk-taking loner, yes. The fact that he almost burned his house down with a chemistry set as a kid and was caught later trying to jump off the roof and fly with homemade wings. These are all things that are just, like, you know, just kind of point in the wrong direction with kids and what they're what they're willing to, you know, test out for a thrill, right? Um, the burglaries, the gun charges, the correctional school history... And, of course, the books that were found on him. It pointed to the fact that there may have been some sexual perversion. The neighborhoods were also well within his comfort zone. And, as he mentioned, uh, something that I thought was really interesting, he said, and I quote, he equaled the feet of those other notorious Chicago killers, Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb, convicted of the thrill murder of Loeb's 14-year-old neighbor. This was because of his intellect. And, of course, then there were the fingerprints. So he was looking at all of this evidence that was against him. And he, honestly, he had so much more to say, and I probably would have, I would have had to add an hour to my story, which were probably already way over, that I thought, I felt was interesting, but ultimately he, he got down to the nitty gritty of it all and he gave a profile. He said, if he were advising the Chicago PD after studying the Ross and Brown murders, he would tell them to look for a white male in his late 20s to 30s who already had a history of break-ins. The unsub would be control-oriented and have a lot of rage, which was evident by the overkill, right, and the repeat mm -hmm. stabbings. Neither woman was aggressive or lived in a, or lived a high-risk lifestyle, so he would agree that they were crimes of opportunity, basically that they happened to be home when the, when the intruder broke in. He said the murder showed a strong degree of criminal sophistication and escalation of acting out rage against women, which is, again, why he would profile an older man. He felt that the lipstick message could be a taunt from a narcissist playing off press coverage, but it could also have been a red herring implanted there by the press, which is one thing that we thought could have been a possibility. Um, so, you know, who wanted to make the, the story more sensational, right? Mm -hmm. um, again, there are so many great insights, so if you want to look at the whole analysis, please check out Law and Disorder, the book, because um, I only took the its and bits that I thought were, were really relevant here. But ultimately, John would say he would have considered Hirons too young to pull off the crime and the detail of sophistication that it would have taken in the Dangnam case. He said, and I quote, he wouldn't go suddenly from casual if repeated burglaries to the murder and mutilation of a six-year-old child brazenly taken from her own bedroom. It just doesn't happen like that. And I think that's what the we same all way. thought, yeah, right? That they We're don't like, match. Why? Yeah. So he would have directed the police to take a closer look at one of the suspects that I haven't told you about yet, that of Richard Russell Thomas. He was a 44-year-old sitting in jail um, in Arizona at the time for molesting his own daughter. Piece of shit. The forgery, un um, the forgery unit there in Arizona thought they saw similarities, 
between the ransom note to the Thomases and his handwriting that Richard Russell wrote with his non-dominant left hand. It, it tells later why. So I know I was kind of like, wait, so they have this guy in jail and they see, I mean, obviously the press published this note. So, you know, everybody's seeing it. Mm-hmm. And somebody just happened to look at it and go, huh, matches this guy's handwriting. And I was so confused at like the time. in Arizona. Yeah, in Arizona. But at the time of the Degnan murder, he was in fact in Chicago working as a nurse at a nearby hospital. He was known to um, hang out around the auto dealership just blocks from the Degnan home. And I wanted to say too that I didn't, I don't think I put it in here, but he used to pretend to be a doctor too. He would like try to... So he was a nurse pretending mm-hmm. to be a doctor, hanging out at hanging out at auto, auto dealerships, dealerships, molesting children, breaking. Oh yeah, yeah. I thought the same thing. I thought, how does this guy even get to work like wow. with this criminal record? I don't know. Maybe he, maybe he had just been. This was like his. I had a doubt. If this was his first time in jail, but um. But when he was picked up, he confessed to the crime. He said, "I did it," but. He didn't seem to know all the details, so the police let him go after he later recanted his confession. So it was another case of maybe where they were like, all right, you need to go back to Arizona, buddy, because they want you for this, this, and this. Or we're not going to take you here because you're already there. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think mm-hmm. it's like, eh. You're like, all right, it doesn't match perfectly. You move on. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But let's look at the facts. One, he was a burglar with a bold and risky MO. Two, his history of domestic violence and abuse. Three, he worked as a nurse and stole surgical supplies. Four, he was convicted in the past for extortion and for sending a ransom note threatening the kidnapping of a little girl. So this guy's been familiar writing these mm-hmm, ransom notes mm-hmm. and these things. So this is probably where they got the, the handwriting analysis from. It didn't say, but now reading, you know, yeah. when I got to that part, I was like, okay, now I get it. And then five, Suzanne's arms were discovered in the sewer directly across from the car dealership. Okay. Praise like, Jesus. I mean, do we need to, do we need, do we need any more than that? Why wouldn't they look further into this guy? I just don't understand. That's what Douglas said. He said, this guy, this is the guy that he would have wanted police to take a closer look at. And I want to note here too that there were other suspects, but this was the guy that I liked the most for the murder. And... I'm not really convinced that the others were related, so I just didn't even talk about them. Mm-hmm. But if you want to look into it more, you can. Um, there were a lot of other people, obviously, questioned in connection. And, you know, like I said, deep dive, <laughs> deep dive if you want. Um, but Douglas also mentioned the ransom note, and I thought this was interesting. If kidnapping was the primary motive, the kidnappers would have researched their target. In this case, they would have found that $20,000 was way more than a year's salary for James Degnan. He didn't make that kind of money. So it all points to the fact that this, you know, the, that and the fact that her body was found the next day, the note was just written as an afterthought or maybe even a distraction, right? But, I mean, the writing on the wall doesn't even match the writing on the note. Thank you. No, I didn't think it did either. This isn't rocket science, no, people. No, it really isn't. The, the handwriting is not even no, anywhere I, near. And, I mean, I... They don't even really use handwriting analysis as much these days, do they? Like, I kind of feel like it's like a almost like they are not sure if it's a, like if it's a science that you can count on. Right, but I mean that just doesn't match at all. I'm not even mm-hmm. saying use it to be guilty, mm-hmm. but if I came al- across no. those, I wouldn't even think it was the same person. Even if Thank someone you. wrote me a note like, "Hey Jen, here's some brownies," because <laughs> I would love some chocolate right now. <laughs> But, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. no. Mm-hmm. No, and that's why I printed those out, because I was hoping that you would you would think the same thing. No, they don't match at all. 
Um, but no, I mean, I loved hearing, I loved hearing his thoughts. He's so good. I take what he has to say with quite a bit of weight when it comes to pretty much any and all deep dive cases. So I always kind of go, oh, I wonder what John Douglas thought about this one. If he, if he looked into this one at all, because he's amazing. I love everything he has to say. It's fantastic. But as for William Hirons, uh, in 2002, Lawrence C. Marshall, uh, filed a petition on his behalf seeking clemency. The appeal was eventually denied. Former Los Angeles police officer Steve Hodel, and this is where I was like, gosh darn it, I know I'm going to pronounce this wrong. It's either Hodel or Hodel. I'm going to go with I think it's Hodel. I think it's Hodel too. Thank you. Maybe I said it right the first time. Okay. Um, So Steve Hodel, who had spent 25 years on the force, met Hirons in 2003 when he was investigating the murders. He was convinced that Hirons was innocent of the crimes. And he said, and I quote, I felt compelled to write an appeal to the Illinois Prisoner Review Board stating my professional belief that Hirons is innocent. And Hirons' most recent parole hearing was held on July 26, 2007. The Illinois uh, Prisoner Review Board decided unanimously, unfortunately, 14 to 0. The vote against the parole, you know, against his parole. And Thomas Johnson stated, Thomas Johnson stated that, and I quote, God will forgive you but the state won't. So they unanimously said, nope, you're still staying in here. So after being taken to the University of Illinois Medical Center on February 26, 2012, due to complications from diabetes, Hirons died only days later on March 5th at the age of 83. He spent a long life in prison. A long time. He was, and I don't think I wrote this down, but I think he was Illinois' longest serving inmate. I mean... At 17 going in, you, you, you would be. It's a long yeah, time. That's a long time. It's a very long time. And as I promised, I do have one last thing to note because it caught my attention when I was sifting through the 51 possible serial killers to talk about this month. But I'm interested in hearing if you know the connection. Okay, so in 2009, that same Steve Hodel, right, that was the officer, published a book titled Most Evil, Avenger, Zodiac, and the further serial murders of Dr. George Hill Hodel, his father. Yes. So he writes this book, right? The book examined the possibility that Hodel had also committed crimes outside of Los Angeles. Do you know this? Yes. Oh, damn. I was so hoping to surprise you with this one, because I didn't know this. That's the only way I know it's Hodel. (laughs) Yeah, right? When you said that and corrected me, I was like, God damn it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well. Um, that's okay. Everybody, there's gotta be people out there that, oh, that yeah, are listening no, that don't know this because this is crazy. So it, most notably, obviously for us tonight, the one I want to talk about that they thought he was connected with were the lipstick murders. So according to the book, information in the district attorney's, um, Hodel Black Dahlia files released in 2003 documented that the victim, um, Elizabeth, um, Elizabeth Short, which is known as the Black Dahlia for pretty much anyone in true crime knows about the Black Dahlia and what, what happened there. But approximately six months prior to her murder in June of 1946, she traveled to Chicago and began her own murder investigation into the lipstick murders. Hmm. Sit with that for a minute. That's crazy. George Hodel was noted as an acquaintance and possible lover of Elizabeth's. So the files indicate that the Chicago coroner believed that the killer of one of the victims, six-year-old Susan Degnan, he said, and I quote, had to have been a skilled surgeon as a, oh boy, hemicorporectomy, hemicorporectomy, 
-hmm. Yeah, that sounds right. Was performed on the child's body by cutting between the second and third lumbar vertebrae. Mm -hmm. This was a fine piece of surgery, is what he noted, right? Yep. Yep. That's yep. crazy. Because, like we talked about, you can't do something like that with a hunting knife. You can't do it. I don't think yep. that it's possible. So Steve believed that his father was responsible for both murders. He suspected that George Hodel discovered that Elizabeth Short, the Black Dahlia, was investigating the Chicago murders. So he quit his job, doctoring in the UN and China at the time, and he returned to the U.S. to deal with it. Short was dead within two months. The theory here is that Short's killer performed surgery too closely comparable to that of the Dagnan child case to be coincidental, and this is where I get chills. Because, and this before I say that, the hemocorporectomy that I mentioned, and hopefully I'm saying that right, was also performed on her. Oh, yeah. Yeah. On the Black Dahlia. And this is the part that I just, oh, goosebumps. Her body was also placed off of a street named, you want to guess? Hmm. Dagnan. I didn't even realize that. That's what made me go, oh, when I was researching this. And I looked it up, and it was, in fact, like, a few blocks away from where her body was. Like, literally right there. That's like, crazy. how do you have chills right now? That's crazy. That is crazy. There's no way that's a coincidence. I love that case. <sighs> I mean, as much as you could love something that's sick. No, I know. I, I think it's probably almost, it's definitely one of the favorites for everybody because we just, we want answers. Yeah. And I wanted to note, too, um... Because it's also crazy. And I think the Zodiac case was probably the one that really started me down the path of true crime cases back in the day. Because I love the Zodiac and I've seen like every movie and I've like really dove into it. Steve Hodel also believes he found evidence that links his father, George, to the San Francisco Bay Area Zodiac murders. He believes Hodel may have been the writer of the legitimate 1970 Zodiac coded cipher mailed to the San Francisco Chronicle. The proposed solution was sent in by M. Yves Person. I'm sure I'm saying her name wrong. She's French, and I don't know how to say that. Um, she's a high school teacher in Paris, and according to Person, George Hodel, using Ogum, which is an ancient Celtic alphabet, signed his real name, Hodel, H-O-D-E-L, placing it both as the return address on the envelope and as the signature on the inside of the card, which read, You ache to know my name. I'll clue you in. Mm-hmm. And I printed it out for you, too. Look at this. There's the Zodiac note, and that's the Celtic writing, and it spells Hodel. Crazy, right? It's that's crazy. so... I mean, and who knows? I mean, all these conspiracy theories, like, really... I enjoy reading them because I think they're... That's crazy. I have to find the article that I read and send it to you about all this. Yeah. No, you have to because I don't... I must not have come across it. Yeah, just the about Hodel and that whole. Oh yeah, yeah. That whole yeah. thing. But no, as soon as I read, as soon as I read that, he, the two murders seemed so connected, and that Elizabeth Short came to Chicago to see about the murder. She wanted to look into it herself. I'm still trying to figure out the why. Like why she would look into it. Yeah, and why. Yeah. I mean, maybe she was like us. And there were no murder podcasts back then, so she was like, I'm going to travel to Chicago and I'm going to insert myself yeah. into this yeah. and see what's going on. It was like crime con for her. <laughs> I mean, I don't know, right? Real life. Yeah. Yeah. No. I mean, I don't know. Maybe, or 
could it be that she had a suspicion and that's why he had to kill her? Yeah, could be. Right? Yeah. She was like, wait, George was here and this is the, I mean, who knows? Who knows what she had or what she thought or what was, I don't know. Yeah. It's so crazy. Or maybe she found something like in his apartment and she thought, because, you know, I don't know, maybe she's snooping, snooping around, around or something, yeah. right? You yeah. and I are like, oh, he's out of town. She's looking Check around. She finds out. this. She finds that. She thinks, oh, my God. We'll never know. No. And that's what kills me. Well, and I don't I don't believe Hines did it. Oh, no. Ever. Oh, no. That's the saddest part is they yeah. pegged three murders on him, and I don't think he did one of them. No. No, I don't think he did it. And that's another reason why I chose the I chose the case too. I just think it's so sad. But you know, it looked like so many people tried to help get him parole, you know, get him paroled and get him out until he had some time, but they just this case was so there's a political, like I said, there's a political aspect of it. There is. And I don't know if And it nobody was... wanted to go against that. No. Nobody wanted to overturn that example. Well, and I don't even think, if I remember correctly, like, even his representatives, I don't think, wanted to challenge. Mm-hmm. It was like one of those things where they just knew we're not going there. We're just... This is it. We have to have our guy. We've spent enough time and money on this, and we need this to be locked right. away right Everybody's now. always in someone's pocket, unfortunately, in politics and in these mm-hmm. situations. No, you're right. And... You're right. I have well, to go and back then, and reread about not, it again. And okay, and then say George Hodel did do the Dangnan case, right? That that was him. Who did? Who did, Who committed the other two murders? And where are they? Did they get away? Probably not. You don't just stop doing that. Oh right, they probably. Yeah. Went on. They just moved on to another another city, city another or state or maybe they ended up getting caught but just did not something connected else. to these two right, right. cuz they're definitely not connected i don't care no. what anyone says they're not connected and i wonder if anybody will, would ever speak out and say i was a member of the press and i wrote that note <laughs> you know what i mean yes oh my on the like deathbed yeah yeah so well that was a good one i'm oh, glad you did it cuz it had a different spin on um, the things I read and probably how I would have mm-hmm. talked about them. Yeah, I feel like our styles of, of sharing these stories are very different. <laughs> I was thinking very, of that while I was different. reading. I'm like, oh my gosh, I think I probably overshare <laughs> many of the times, but... No, they're good. I like all of all of the things that you share. I appreciate uh-huh. it. I like the details. And I like the pictures... Thank you so yeah. much, and I promise I, think that was I will give you pictures next time. I don't know if I didn't show you the picture of um. Did I show you the picture of William? Mm-hmm. Mm. I'll look for it and I'll show you because I've got it over here. But um, do we have a do we have a flip script? Um. Oh, I found it. There he is. Oh. He seriously reminds me of my grandpa. He looks like the older brother in Wonder Years. Yeah, he does. He's actually kind of cute. Yeah, he's he's very cute. Um, oh, speaking of my grandpa, he just turned 89. Happy birthday, Yay! grandpa! That's a huge hooray, right? Oh and he's still, like, rocking and rolling. 89. Oh, my gosh. He's amazing. He's still, I mean, yeah. He's still gardening and 
running around doing this and that. He tried to help my dad with the roof. I don't know. I was like, no, oh gosh, you can't go no. up there. You're no. 89. He's like, oh, I gotta help. I gotta help. It's okay. I mean, my dad literally has to like practically duct tape him to a chair to come over and like handle things that he sh- that are too dangerous for him to do. But he's just still, he's still like 29 at heart. And that's, I mean, running around doing everything. I think that's what everything. keeps you young. It's amazing. You stay active. Mm-hmm. That's great. Mm-hmm. Happy birthday to him. Yeah. Happy birthday, Grandpa. You have longevity in your genes. Yeah, we do. Mm-hmm. Grandma's still, she's still there too. Grandma and Grandpa, yeah. both of them. Steve's out. parents lived, or Steve's family lives to like 100. Yeah, yeah. My other, my other great grandma, my dad's side actually, she lived to be 99. Yeah. I don't know if I want to live that long, though. As long Is as... Is that bad to say? No, <laughs> I don't think that's bad to say. As long as you're of sound body, body, body <laughs> and mind, and mm-hmm. you can... Yeah. I think that's okay, but yeah. if you can't move, that's just yeah. an awful feeling. As long as I can still have snack days and, you know, mm-hmm. do yeah. all the things that I love. Yeah. Like, sit on the porch and yell at kids. Mm-hmm. Get yeah. off my lawn. Get off my lawn. Like, shake stuff and, oh, yeah. We yeah. have to have a bucket list of that kind of thing. old people things to do. Yeah. Uh, you, well, Julia got her cast off, so yay! That's, that's right. Good. She's cleared to start practicing low impact. Oh, um, I bet she's so happy. She is. So no vault, no bars, but she'll be back on the beam. And so they say, and as soon as they turn their back, she's over there vaulting, I, vaulting right. her little heart so, out. Her and her, her coach and I talked and. The biggest thing, obviously, is making sure that the muscle loss isn't give her a different injury because her bone is healed, but they're just worried that she's going to think she can do something she can't Mm because that arm is so weak and she's going to end up with a different injury. So hopefully she takes it slow. Her first competition is uh, the first weekend in December. Oh, that's exciting. She really, really wants to compete. I don't know. Uh, oh, but maybe it's not exciting because of COVID. Is she going to be able to? Are well, they're still having anything? competitions. It's okay. very limited in how it's being done. Just a little bit longer, mm-hmm. less people, less spectators. Yeah. It's very, it's crazy. Gotcha. But they're still doing it. God help us, unless something else <sighs> happens in between now and then. Right. I don't know if she's going to be ready for the first competition. Her ortho told her not to count on it. Um, so she's counting on it? So she's counting on it. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know her. Oh, yeah. So we'll have to see what happens. But that's exciting that we don't have to worry about her cast. or Because you saw her wipe out on Halloween. Oh, yeah. Cause yeah. With her, her poor cast. Are you kidding? Had that kid is so taken prone out of it. <laughs> to injury. Oh, my God. I was so embarrassed. Um, Julia. <laughs> There's chunks taking out of it, scrapes, it had grass stains. Oh, my God. I was like, honey, how old is that? She's like, we just bought it. I'm like, oh, yeah. Remember, she was like, Miss Tara, can you fix this? Can you sew that? And I was like, nah, it's super, it looks like, it looks like you've been doing a lot of vamping. Yes. Keep, keep it up. She's like, vampire what? Like, yeah, you're vamping. It was shredded. Oh, my God, it Her was. costume There were holes shredded. everywhere. <laughs> The whole entire arm sleeve was ripped up. Well, and her splint. Her splint looks like it's been through three car accidents. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like really I said, bad. when she got her cast off, it had grass stains on mm-hmm. it. And she was trying to use a magic eraser <laughs> to clean it up before she went to the doctor to try to hide. The fact that she's been running around. Yes. Like yeah. Yeah. 
Because no running. Oh. No running. <laughs> I did this on the couch, I swear. <laughs> my dog was chewing on my arm. <laughs> oh, Julia. Oh, but anyways, so that's exciting. Well, yeah. um, I guess just happy Thanksgiving yeah. to everybody. We hope we have, they have a wonderful, safe Happy Thanksgiving, you know, even if you can't be with your family, like, we don't know if we are, I I know it's coming down to the wire, but... Do whatever makes you feel comfortable and happy and your family comfortable and happy. And maybe do that. This is kind of fun. If you guys are still, like, wanting all the decorations and the pumpkin stuff, I saw this really cute idea where you get, like, one of those white pumpkins, if you can find them. I know we, we were hard-pressed to find white pumpkins. We had, like, yellow, yellow bumpy pumpkin. <laughs> they, they turned into squash. But maybe just or do something and, and just have everybody write down. So the cute idea that I saw was everybody wrote on the pumpkin what they were grateful for, and then they, like, had it as their decoration or their mm-hmm. centerpiece. It just had all the stuff on it, which I thought was really, really cool. So maybe do something along that theme and still try to remind everybody what you're grateful for through this season, even though we can't all be together, you know, but yeah, I agree. That's a good idea. Yeah. So happy Thanksgiving, stuff yourselves with all the good stuff, all the good food. Make sure you get that cranberry sauce and take a Don't nap. Don't forget it. Take, <laughs> take naps. a nap. Yeah. All right. All Until the good things. Time. Yep.